Good morning and welcome to the Stupidly Small Podcast. It is Monday the 20th of April. I've said stupidly small correctly and I've got the date right. I am not Stuart Farrell. I'm Lauren Clark. Stu Farrell is not in town. He has been caught out of town. He's not here. It's just me. So what I'm going to do today is we're going to replay one of our um, most listened to interviews. We're going to replay an interview we did uh, a while ago with John Clark, and uh, I'm going to leave it at that. So at the end, you'll hear us say goodbye, and then that will be the end of the podcast. This is the first time we've done this. Let's see how it goes. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow, and uh, we'll see you then. Here's John Clark uh, talking about the history of humour. This is the first one in the series, and uh, there are a few more after that that we can replay at a later time. In the meantime, you can find us online on Facebook, Twitter. You can find us on at our website, stupidlybig.com. And uh, hopefully Stu can uh, get back to town in time to be here tomorrow. Let's see how we go. Bye-bye. Stupid. Lauren, mm-hmm. it is now again time for another new segment. And this one is especially special because it... Well, especially special, that's a great way to start it off. Have it, I stop talking and let our guests do the talking. <laughs> Writer, performer, and uh, all around good guy, John Clark, how are you? I'm oh, very good. It's especially special to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm glad it's especially special to be with us. It is especially special for us, too. You know that. I do. And uh, you are here on an ongoing basis, but this is the first one to discuss with us and to let us know about the history of humour. Yeah, well, at the risk of being boring, um, mm, at the risk of being tedious, uh, <laughs> it, it occurred to me because I was talking to somebody recently who who said that he was writing about the about humour, about mm. comedy, um, and these are distinctions I'm never quite sure about mm. anyway. And um, I said about what aspect, uh, and the aspects included the history. And I said, um, so do you know about the history of of comedy and he said oh yes he said we're going right back to Seinfeld (laughs) (laughs) and I thought well there was there is documentary evidence of some life forms prior to that and there's plenty of humor prior to that and can I ask how old this person was that thought comedy started at Seinfeld or about 30 something Um, still not a good enough excuse is it well no it's not really and um and it is difficult to understand anything without understanding its history. Mm. So, and there are lots of aspects to the history of um, humour. There have been times, for example, when it was almost entirely written and the important things are not performance at all, they're writing. There are other times where performance is preeminent and so on. And it's been going since the Greeks and before that. Um, but... Uh, The other thing was that I saw a very interesting TED Talk by David Byrne Mm -hmm. um, from Talking Heads in which his principal contention is that you can't understand the history of music without understanding the history of architecture because music has been designed historically to fit into spaces Mm. Um, from, you know, the chamber music comes from a time when you played for the king and there were five of you Mm. um, 
no drummer, please, a bit loud. Mm. The chamber is quite small. Right. Then there's a period when we get orchestras and you need everything you can to get to the back wall of the auditorium. Is that because things got, uh, spaces got more, you know, expensive and large yeah, civic, and people were richer? Or? progress and... And education and an increasing population. And and also the population was listening to the music, not just the king, I suppose. That's right. Right. And so you needed the artillery to hit the back wall. So you got, you know, plenty of brass and some drums and, you know, grunt. Yeah. Serious throughput. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you get orchestral music right. and you get big choirs, Beethoven, you know, all this stuff. Um, David Byrne's contention in the end is that the current architectural space in which we listen to music is the earbud. Yeah, of course. So people can now whisper a pop song. Right, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, and I, it occurred to me that there are so many other factors than simply your writing or performing ability in the history of humour because the social and historical contexts are very different. War, for example, produces a lot of humour. It has to. Yeah. Um, and it, is it a bleak humour? Because it's war or is it a resistance Possibly. to the bleakness? Well, The Goon Show, for example, is effectively Spike Milligan's response to being involved in the Second World War. Yeah. Um, it, it, you mean as a coping type yes, response? Yes, an anxiety produced by the Second World War produced in Milligan the response that everything is surreal, there kind of isn't any meaning. Um, somebody once... Uh, said that it's very, very hard to write like Milligan because there are certain things in, in The Goon Show that no one else would think of. The example given was that um, that somebody was trying to explain to Eccles the principle of gravity and said to Eccles, I'll demonstrate it for you. You jump in the air, go on, jump, and Eccles jumped. And he said, now you came back down. Why? And Eccles said, because I live here. <laughs> And this guy said right. nobody else would have written that because what Milligan can do because he's kind of pretty high tension, Milligan. Right. And <clears throat> so he can change his intention in the middle of a sentence. He doesn't have really a preconceived idea about a lot of things. It's responsive at a very high rate yeah. to whatever's happening, which he can't control. It's surreal. It uses the same language, but it uses it in different ways. So it's train of thought, just whatever's yeah. popping into his head is what's coming out of his mouth? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And he's brilliant at it. And he's given it a form, which is the form of the, as it were, sitcom. Same characters each week, catch lines, different plot, um, which is a form that was established in radio. Um, so he's using a form, but he's busting out of it a bit, isn't he? Yeah, and he's using forms other than the form he's using too. If there was a film on at the time that was huge, he would do a Goon Show episode where they were pretending that they were that film. Oh, right, like <coughs> The Simpsons does. Like what? Like The Simpsons does, where every now yes. and then becomes an episode of, yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's a thing that, that, that comedy, that your comedy 30-year-old comedy person would have would recognise in contemporary comedy that's, that's right. been done a sort before. of multi-layering. Well, Milligan was an early... Right. Uh, um, ...instinctively does that a lot. And and what are some other... I mean, you mentioned the David Byrne, the, the architecture, the importance of architecture. What's, what are the important contexts for, for comedy in history, do you reckon? Well, the other one I was thinking about 
in my limited way. I'll come to others. I'm sure they'll <laughs> occur to us. But yeah. um, one of them is the changing media because um, the in the 19th century, for example, um, Charles Dickens was writing novels um, and he joins Jane Austen up to the modern world, really. He was kind of born in 1812 when Jane Austen was writing those novels. But he, he comes right through to the 20th century. And when he was writing, he wrote for magazines and he wrote his novels episodically, which is why you could argue, I think, that Dickens is the first great television writer because he writes in episodes. There's a reason you need to watch the next episode mm. at the end of each episode. Characters that work are retained. Characters that don't work are dropped. And you can binge the whole box set in a week. That's right. And yeah. the, but the box set's basically put together later. It's got up as a novel. Right. It needs to tie some loose ends together. So <laughs> the last episode's always, remember the girl with the freckles? She married the postman. Um, <laughs> Etc. So you get that rounding up of stuff. Yeah. And it's all tied with a bow and it's called that novel. Right. But actually it was episodic. Yeah. And um, he, when he finished a novel, conventionally went out and he toured the novel as a stage show. He read from the novel and from other novels. So there was a Dickens stage show, so he'd read chapter four from this novel and that really good bit from that other novel and the famous death scene from whatever. And he really acted. I've heard, I yeah. think I've heard, heard it, and he's quite full. It's quite theatrical, isn't it's it? It's highly theatrical. Yeah. He did. He acted it so much. He did a tour of America, which a lot of people say is what killed him. Really? He absolutely adored doing it. You couldn't get in. They were bigger than Texas, these concerts, and he wrung every last tear or whatever it was out of himself. And the theatre was the thing in that right. period. There was no radio. There was certainly no television or anything subsequent. It was print and stage. And print and stage in America was particularly interesting in the history of humour because a lot of people in America were not in England. They were in the New World and they were in a country that had thrown the English out. They spoke English, but they were definitely different. Yeah. And people who wanted to be funny in America had to develop a kind of show in which they got up and did readings. Then the book came out and it sold like hotcakes because of this was the guy who did those readings, remember, that we laughed at? And there were people doing it. Mark Twain was one of them. There was a guy called Petroleum V. Naseby. What? Who's, I'm inclined to think that's not his real name. His name was Petroleum Z. Naseby. Uh, there was another guy called Artemis Ward. These people did shows, often in kind of the backwoodsman language, the... I'm really stupid, but it seems to me that... I see, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of that. I'm one of you, yeah. Yeah, and they all... Are, each of them has to adopt a kind of character or a form, and then they do that. And the, probably the greatest writer among them was Mark Twain, who then went on and wrote these novels. A couple of famey, famey books. Yeah, including Huckleberry Finn, which is, a, you know, allegedly the great... Twain novel and certainly the most autobiographical. Right. Like Dickens, the great Dickens novel by general agreement is David Copperfield, which is the most autobiographical. All right. Look, we've, I suspect, barely touched the surface. Am I correct? What's, oh, yes, there's no, I, I thought we hadn't got down to the surface. No, okay, good. Excellent. Can you come back? Can we talk to you again? Yes, you may. Excellent. We look forward to it. Thanks so much uh, for chatting to us, John. My pleasure. <laughs> 